into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God bless America. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America. As long as she tries to act like she is God and she is supreme. Yeah, he's, um, he's the victim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's the real victim right. of the crucible. That's how they teach it in high school now. Yeah. <laughs> they just play his trial. You don't even have to read it anymore. We yeah. all remember what the Clintons did to those women in the crucible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Scarlet Letter is like W for white man or something. <laughs> um, hello, the damned. Welcome to Pod Damn America, the... Uh, goth socialist podcast for spooky creeps creepy crawlies that um would like the minimum wage to be raised um or something you go bump in uh, the night yeah um it's a, it's a it's a scary time to be a man it's halloween baby <laughs> <laughs> it's a spooky time to be a man according to the president um which i'm fine with because i love scary movies and shit baby i'm one of those fucking halloween pumpkin spice people i don't give a fuck um, and, uh, some of you are too, which is why, uh, we've formed the damned. Uh, some of you guys, I think hate this nickname and that's, uh, uh your problem, I guess. You're uh, outnumbered by talking <laughs> skeletons. <laughs> yeah. The um, share zone style skeleton. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, anyways, welcome to the show. Uh, sorry, it's coming out a little bit late this week. I've been sick. I've been laying around talking like Tom Waits, um, infected with some sort of, uh, disease or something. I don't really know what's going on. Um, first off the bat, though, thank you very much if you came out to the first edition of Yoko at El Cortez the other night. Uh, we had a bunch of people come out, and we did really well, so I think we're going to have a regular show there. Um, Yoko is a stand-up comedy show run by me, Ian Fidance, uh, of having his dad smashed by a train fame. <laughs> 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 and my pal Claro Kane. Um, <laughs> the joke being she's an Asian woman and we're, I don't know, that's like the entire joke. Imagine like, what would your hook in comedy be? It's like, <laughs> yeah, my dad was killed. <laughs> that's what people on the internet know me for. Buy a train. Ian's a, a fucking entertainer, man. I was watching him last night and he was doing a bit where he was, or not last night, the other night at Yoko and he was doing this bit where he's like, yeah, so my dad's been smashed by a train. And he, like, that's how they phrased it on Come Down and instead of like, I guess, you know, like just taking that, he was like, no, now that's my bit. You can't, <laughs> you can't really take that away from him. But he specifically used the Mullen phrase, smashed by a train. What an artist does is they hold a mirror up to <laughs> the most popular podcast they've been on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, thanks for coming out. Um, I'm stoked. I think we're going to do a lot more. Um, yeah, the show was good. Gethard host, uh, headlined. That was awesome. Uh, the nachos there are quite good. Um, so, fucking A, sick. Um, before we get to uh, everything today, I'll introduce my guests. Uh, today I've got Alex Patak. I'm taking a pumpkin and I'm smashing it. Hell yeah. Um, and uh, from the Grub Stakers podcast and from comedy, Sean P. McCarthy. Hello, good to be here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for having me. And the um, uh, head of the... DSA landlord steering committee or whatever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was so hard to get a non-landlord through that committee. <laughs> I, wish I, I wish I could pretend I was the person on Twitter who came up with DSA landlord caucus, but it's a... Uh, <laughs> you get replies. <laughs> oh, I thought that wasn't your... Uh, you're, I mean, you're just I, just you just own it and collect yes. rent on it. I popularized it. I'm the, I'm the Steve Jobs of DSA Landlord Caucus. Oh, fair enough. Other people's idea, I sold it. Oh, <laughs> you're like Elon. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, I quite enjoyed that. So thanks for pissing all those people off. That shit yeah. was really funny. Well, it's interesting. Like you do stand up. Like I don't know. I've been doing it more than a decade now, and it's still fun. But Eventually, you realize, like, making people angry at you on the internet over things that you're clearly being sarcastic about has its own kind of, like, joy. And you just kind of cackle in a way that's that's almost childlike. <laughs> Sometimes you miss that, and so you uh, say ridiculous things online. 
Yeah, no, that's real. There, there really is like this weird thing with comedy where you go all the way around and you're just screaming about society on stage, and you're like, wait a minute, I think I got into this to laugh. Yeah. So you have to do something extremely stupid and immature to yeah, actually yeah. get back to uh, you know the joy of it. Um, it's a dumb art form, and it should be set on fire and abolished, in my opinion. Well, well, we'll kind of talk about this a bit, but I've been like trying to write about like um, essentially the the corruption that we'll talk about with the opioid uh, epidemic. And so you just see like all these people going in and out of government, you know, with both FDA, DEA, all of this, like all these people who are supposed to be like holding the pharmaceuticals who created the heroin epidemic accountable are like going and taking these six figure jobs working for these people. So it's like, you know, I was just like, I think yesterday or the day before, like trying to write a bit about it. And I'm just like. Like, remember when I was just silly? (laughs) Remember when I wasn't just, like, fucking just so depressed all the time and trying to, like, lash out and change anything, which maybe you just can't change. Maybe we're just too far gone, you know? Oh, I have an idea for a fun bit. What if I take down Purdue Chemicals? (laughs) I think people would laugh a lot if I tackle the opioid crisis. (laughs) Um... Yeah. You know, what's weird about those jobs, too, is you take them because they feel good, but then you look at yourself in 10 years and you're like, what have I become? Yeah. Oh, uh, interesting parallel that yeah. you've drawn there. I like it. <laughs> I'm um, a metaphor graphic artist. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we are going to talk about the opioid crisis today. Before we get into that one order of business, I just need to add an addendum to our last episode. Uh, if you are a Patreon subscriber and you listened to our Patreon episode with uh, Mike Gams and Irene Hartman, we talked a little bit about John McAfee, who I'm uh, sort of upset with now that's my political thing i'm obsessed with that's the thing i'll go on stage and open mic and be yelling about and people will be like what the fuck what reddit sub thread has this guy been on for the last 12 hours um john mcafee uh google him if you don't know who he is and you didn't listen to the thing i'm not gonna explain it again because it's too much he's an eccentric billionaire <laughs> who takes shits through hammocks and flies on motorcycles and shit he's awesome but uh, i just i just want to let anyone know out there if you're on twitter fucking follow this guy he's great um he like right after we finished that episode i didn't really have enough time to go back in and like reopen the episode to talk about this but right after we finished talking about him he tweeted this video of him with his master mixologist he's like an insane billionaire millionaire guy that has like his own live-in mixologist and he was making this crazy drink and then the next tweet was so, um, you know, Mixmaster Ken or whatever, um, his, you know, final ingredient at the end of it is that he took a piss in the drink a little bit and we drank <laughs> it. And I got to tell you, it's great and yada, yada, yada. And he's like, you know, and if you're afraid to do this, you can substitute it with seltzer. It was all just very, like, <laughs> flat out and honest and he wasn't joking, but um, that guy drinks piss cocktails. So, yeah. as someone who created an empire of antivirus software, sometimes it just feels good to just put the virus in. <laughs> yeah, really. Just drink it right up. He's it like, comes he- from can. You can't poison me. I am antivirus. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, imagine being afraid around that guy who uh, killed two people in Belize. Oh, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, I was, so I was talking to Jake. That, that was for a drink. Right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Showtime documentary about him that came out in like 2016. And so the story about like his neighbor, if, I don't know if you guys talked about that on the podcast, but his no. neighbor that he allegedly might have killed was, as they tell it in the documentary, he had these like security guards because he was like basically had like 12 armed guards at all times. And they had these security dogs that were like barking all the time and harassing tourists on the beach. So his neighbor comes over and says, hey, could you please like calm your dogs down or do something? He comes back, gets a shotgun, cocks it and tells the guy, get the fuck off my property. <laughs> so then the guy points his dogs and then McAfee allegedly pays somebody $5,000 to kill him and then he has to flee Belize oh my god that's f- fucking insane. No. Yeah. It seems like a steal, assassin-wise, <laughs> right? $5,000? Yeah. Yeah, that's a... That's you, a bad assassin. Wait, right. you have that joke about naked and afraid, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's like yeah. the prize is 5000 bucks. <laughs> it's just <laughs> not enough money to do it for. <laughs> I like yeah. how you like, you can't buy real estate, but you can end human life. <laughs> <laughs> um... Yeah, I should have figured you would know about McAfee uh, being that. The Grubstakers podcast, great podcast, is a podcast about uh, horrible rich people. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. Highly recommended. It. It's fun if you want to learn about horrible people that have too much money and how much they suck. Open the dark book <laughs> of millionaires. Anyways. Goth uh, podcast. Um, my main source for today's like deep dive uh, is a, a book called Dreamland by Sam Quinones or something. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um 
it came out in 2015. Uh, came highly recommended. I listened to it this week. Um, it was really good. And uh, so, if you haven't read Dreamland, basically the the kind of thesis of it is, um, you know, it's written by this guy who's like a uh, he was like an ex LA, LA Times reporter, and um, his sort of story that he's trying to tell in this book is sort of a three pronged one. It kind of follows um, the history of morphine through um, its adoption by the Purdue Pharma Company and um you know well it was we'll get into all the various companies that's sort of been through but it's it's like role in the uh in the healthcare industry and also the this like <laughs> practice of um like kind of sort of bootlegging drugs and prescription drugs uh called like pill mills that sort of occurred during the opioid crisis and then the third thing that follows is the drug dealers who specifically sort of um like revolutionized drug dealing in an interesting way in a way that then smashed together with these pill mills and with Purdue all in the same in the middle of the country and started this whole thing it's really interesting um, quick question is this a Hunter S. Thompson style gonzo adventure <laughs> where he takes all the drugs and falls asleep no that would have been fucking awesome but unfortunately it was uh, I think this guy's a nerd really uninteresting chapters just like oh I took so much oxycodone and I fell asleep and I took morphine and I fell asleep yeah. every, every chapter opens with him talking about how itchy he is. Oh, <laughs> uh, chapter three. Played, I need the bats to itch me, man. <laughs> played the trombone again. <laughs> I'm getting really good at it. Um, okay, so to get us into sort of how all this sort of stuff came together in the perfect storm, um, we'll start in just the history of opium itself. And I'm going to read straight from the Wikipedia page here because it's oddly pretty concise. Um, the opium poppy was cultivated in lower Mesopotamia along, uh, as long ago as 3400 BCE. The chemical analysis of opium in the 19th century revealed that most of its activity could be ascribed to two alkaloids, codeine and morphine. Diamorphine was first synthesized in 1874 by C.R. Alder Wright, an English chemist working at St. Mary's Hospital Medical School in London. He had been experimenting with combining morphine with various acids. He boiled anhydrous morphine alkaloid with acetic anhydride, anhydride for several hours and then produced a more potent acetylated form of morphine now called diacetylmorphine or morphine diacetate. Our, our listeners know this stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> the real heads know. The compound was sent to F.M. Pierce at Owens College in Manchester for analysis. Pierce told Wright, this is the quote, doses were sub subcutaneously injected into young dogs and rabbits with the following <laughs> general results. Old medicine is so fucking funny. They just <laughs> shoot it into random animals and electrocute them and shit. It's like 90% of the time against everyone's will, too. It's just like, <laughs> I have to make a Frankenstein monster. Yeah. I'm getting close. There's no reason, like, old-timey doctors should have been allowed to do any of this shit. They're just running around with those, like, bubonic plague bird masks on and shit. <laughs> they just get to because they went to school for six years. Telling you you're full of ghosts. <laughs> yeah. Um... Oh, uh, with the following results, this is the results on the dogs, great prostration, fear, and sleepiness speedily followed the administration, and the eyes being sensitive, the, pu the pupils constrict, considerable salivation being produced in dogs, dogs never salivate, and slight tendency towards vomiting in some cases, but no actual emesis. Respiration was at first quickened, but subsequently reduced, and the heart's action was diminished and rendered irregular. Marked want of coordinating power over the muscular movements and loss of power in the pelvis and hind limbs, um, together with the diminution, diminution. I can't say this word. Diminution. The smallerness of temperature in the rectum about four. Sean, do you have a guess? I drink too much coffee. Diminution. Yeah, there you go. Paw damnation. Um, Wright's invention did not lead to any further developments, and diamorphine became popular only after it was independently resynthesized 23 years later by another chemist, Felix Hoffman. Hoffman working at Bayer Pharmaceutical Company in Elberfield, Germany. So fucking Bayer, the headache medicine company. Um, you know, they the were also part of IG Farben, which was involved in making uh, Zyklon B for the Holocaust. Yep. <laughs> I did know that. 
Yeah. Why do I know that? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's all this shit that's just like on the sly. Like, <laughs> yeah, we used to work for someone else in Germany. <laughs> um, like, um, do you know where Fanta Cola, like Fanta Soda, comes from? Oh no! <laughs> Don't tell me they were part of the Holocaust. <laughs> it's not Jews' blood, is it? <laughs> it was the Coca-Cola company. Was is when the U.S. got involved in the war, no longer could sell Coca-Cola to Nazis, so they created like a sub shell company, mm. Fanta, to sell like fruity sodas to Nazis <laughs> and just hope that no one would notice it was the same company. What do Nazis love more than anyone else, McGee? I'll tell you, it's grapes. <laughs> when I'm up all night on the Eastern Front, my throat gets dry. <laughs> and that's why I drink Fanta with all of my comrades on the Einsatzgruppen. Yeah. Warm Fanta to keep you warm in Poland. <laughs> uh, remember that show on Nickelodeon, Keenan and Kel, where he was like, who loves orange soda? Adolf Hitler loves orange soda. <laughs> um, oh, Kel knew. Yeah. All the money. <laughs> so, basically, Bayer synthesizes the first form of heroin and calls it heroin after, like, the you know the Greek word heroes um, makes you feel like a hero and all this shit. And, um, you know. And ushers a revolution in music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In, 19, in 1895, the German drug company Bayer marketed di morphine as an over-the-counter drug under the trademark heroin. It was developed cheaply as a morphine substitute for cough suppressants that did not have morphine's addictive side effects. So it, heroin was like, the this is the non-addictive version of morphine, basically. Um, mm -hmm. Morphine was already being synthesized from poppies. It's funny how many like times you hear that throughout the history of opioids. Because the, when we get to OxyContin, they entirely marketed that as the non-addictive morphine, you know? Yeah. The, it's like every 20 years, there's a new non-addictive <laughs> fucking opioid. For the on-the-go pain addict. The, the basic... Um, yeah, the basic history of morphine is just one of, you know, there's pain, there's this thing, this drug that's sort of like makes you not feel the pain and just a constant sort of rebranding and trying to sell it as like this one's not addictive <laughs> this um, one has electrolytes <laughs> it's uh it's fucking crazy and it just happens like over and over and over again right so then in 1914 harrison uh the harrison narcotics act requires prescriptions uh for uh morphine and heroin uh this happens in america um, a decade later, uh, the Anti-Heroin Act bans production and sale altogether. So around this time, like the 1920s, you got all these fucking jazz guys doing heroin. Mm. Um, it's starting to be demonized as like, you know, a fucking, uh, you know, weird, uh, poor person's creepy, junky thing or whatever. Uh, socially, it's starting to change, mm. right? It teaches you how to play the saxophone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then in 1935, uh, FDR opens this thing called the Narcotics Farm. Um, the Narcotics Farm, a.k.a. the blah, 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 Federal Medical Center in Lux Lexington, Kentucky, is the United States' first um, sort of like um, like narcotics-based uh, recovery center, sort of. It's like half a prison. Um, and it's got this crazy history of all these like famous people that were in it. William S. Burroughs was in it. Um, he wrote about it. He wrote a novel, you know, sort of takes place in it. Um, some other famous people that were in the, uh, the narcotics farm, um, let's see, Susan Rosenberg, a political activist and former member of May 19th communist organization, a terror, this is according to Wikipedia, a terrorist group which carried out bombings of government facilities and bank robberies in the 1980s, convicted of possessing explosives in 1984. That is cool. <laughs> <laughs> FDR uh, sent people there. Uh, because he was jealous they could walk. <laughs> 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 it's my internment camp for people who can use their legs. <laughs> you think you're better than me? Yeah. <laughs> um, Wayne Kramer, guitarist and co-founder of the Detroit rock band MC5, convicted of selling cocaine to over undercover police officers. Uh, that's pretty cool. Red Rodney, bop and hard bop trumpeter, convicted of fraud and theft for impersonating an army officer in order to steal $10,000 from the Atomic Energy Commission of San Francisco. Badass. Cool. <laughs> Did they ever send the bare naked ladies guys over there? I fucking hope they die. Only for there. one week. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. That's yeah, it's uh, jokes about being addicted to heroin. <laughs> uh, or that song, rather. Um, so then... It's more of a joke. <laughs> uh, f fair enough. Take that, you banned from the 1990s. Um... So then, uh, 
speeding up a little bit, something happens in 1980, and this is sort of like where um, where the big turn takes place that sort of leads to uh, Purdue being able to sell and perpetuate OxyContin. Um, in January 1980, the New England Journal of Medicine publishes a letter to the editor by a Dr. Herschel Jick stating that of his 11,800 patients or so that have been treated with opiates, only four became addicted. Um, it was published with the headline, Addiction Rare in Patients Treated with Narcotics. So this guy wrote this letter to the editor in this uh, New England Journal. It was like an afterthought. He didn't think much of it. It's literally one sentence from his letter gets like sort of taken out of context by all these people mm-hmm. and used to justify um, sort of returning opiates to the market in, uh, in the the form of like a pain relief thing mm. um he's since been interviewed and said like oh i don't remember doing that at all you know that wasn't my intention or whatever i was on so much heroin yeah. back then <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> he was a doctor from the past so yeah <laughs> the interviewer was like hey remember that one sentence you wrote that killed two hundred thousand people <laughs> <laughs> yeah he kind of like does have that weird legacy of like i think he's just like i don't want to talk about it you know <laughs> like that guy who wrote the anarchist cookbook yeah. why does anybody want to talk about my band <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, I keep going on podcasts, and they won't, they won't talk about my new papers. They just want to talk about the old stuff. <laughs> they want to talk about my web series. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> this guy, Herschel Jick, had this uh, you know small sample size, and the important thing about his sample size is that everyone back then who was treated with opiates was treated in the hospital. Right. Um, and they didn't have the button or anything yet, um, and they no one was given opiates to take home. Right? Mm. And so that's sort of like the most important part of this. Um in uh let's see after that uh, la, 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 la. in 1995 the fda approves oxycontin 1998 the fda approves actic with a q um oh, fuck yeah <laughs> the active ingredient in active is fentanyl um sort of how fentanyl got into the market mm-hmm. um and then purdue um starts marketing Oxycontin right. real hard. I can, I can talk about that a bit. Sure. Yeah, well, I was just going to say, so 95 Oxycontin gets introduced, which like Purdue has this kind of time release thing. It's like time release oxycodone. So the FDA official writes a sentence on it, which is, I believe, on the label until 2001 or so, which says that because of the time release, it may be less addictive. Um, and then there's like no study to show that it's less addictive, but this is because of the FDA on the label from 95 to 01. And then this FDA official surprise goes on to work at Purdue Pharma. Right. So it's like, I heard those and, are really good jobs. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> they essentially like spend, uh, 95 to 99 on a crazy marketing campaign, which includes giving out free coupons. Uh, Purdue Pharma gave out at least 34,000 free one-month doses, oh, which is <laughs> literal drug dealer shit. Yeah, I've We're, got a note about that here. First yeah. taste is free. Right, so they give out at least 34,000 one-month free dose coupons. They have at least 40 all-expenses-paid junkets for doctors where uh, where they fly doctors out to Boca Raton and other holiday resorts for pain management sessions where they tell them, you know, hey, just prescribe Oxycontin for headaches or whatever the fuck chronic pain, you know? And uh, the 90s is also where they kind of lobby heavy to have doctors, you know, focus on pain management and asking people, you know, how much pain do you have on a scale of one to 10? And if it's a five or more, give them opiates. Right. Is that where that chart comes from? (laughs) I guess so. Okay. So I have something about that. So first of all, just to that that note about, uh, produce marketing i um in addition to the coupons doctors also received oxycontin fishing hats (laughs) stuffed toys coffee mugs golf balls and pens with a dosage chart like the the kind that you like turn and the the chick's top comes off Um, right yeah you know the one we all have and also (laughs) a cd called swing is alive urging (laughs) listeners to quote swing in the right direction with oxycontin that featured (laughs) big band music it was during the 90s when like brian setzer orchestra and shit was going on oxycontin key party put your keys in the bowl (laughs) (laughs) you can like you can turn the oxycontin hat inside out and it says sinaloa cartel on the other side hell yeah <laughs> it makes you look like Fred Durst. <laughs> one of those fucking bucket hats. Um, <laughs> I think those are cool. <laughs> He's still wearing them. Did you see that clip of him uh, getting a fight with the ICP last week? Come 
on! Both of them are still touring, and apparently they're playing shows together, and one of the guys from Insane Clown Posse tried to dropkick Fred Durst, <laughs> but fucked fuck? it up in the middle of it. What the and so fuck? he was dragged off stage by a bunch of Limp Biscuit people. Um, it was fucking awesome. I don't think that's cool, dropkicking Fred Durst. Um, He's a veteran of rock. <laughs> <laughs> um, something else that was happening around the same time is something referred to in the medical community as the quote-unquote pain revolution. Uh, <laughs> the damned. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like a fucking Hellraiser movie. It's badass. But uh, the thing about the pain revolution is that, um, so like a lot of times when I think these like s- these medical things go awry, I mean, the, the big problem is, you know, the the bad people at Purdue Pharma, right? But there's often, like, some other third sort of less less um, indictable factors. And one of them I think is kind of, like, honest, is there was a real movement uh, to try to, um, to combat pain in, like, uh, people who were dying, like terminal patients, which up to a certain point in medical history just wasn't a thing. They would just go, well, you're dying. Who gives a shit, right? Um, So they came up with, uh, you know, a lot of research surrounding the use of opiates in um, terminal patients and just sort of in general and basically also in in treating chronic pain, which just hadn't been a thing, right? So it's a stab in the dark. They sort of find opiates. And the reason they find them is because this is just like a, a new burgeoning sort of idea in medicine um because in medicine you have um four vital signs right so there was this big push to make pain the fifth vital sign when you come in you know you, you check their heart rate and whatever the fuck i don't know i'm not a doctor it's the umami of vital signs. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was added in 1999 or some shit um the japanese sounds, love it <laughs> sounds like a like a bad wwe wrestler's catchphrase or something <laughs> I'll, I'll show you your fifth vital sign <laughs> and the reasoning behind it was that you know they're they're you might be able to help the patient in some way if you know you might be overlooking something if we're not asking people well how 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 much pain do you feel but the problem being that you know medical science at this point is starting to become pretty advanced and you can't measure pain quantifiably which is where that smiley face thing comes from that up until like i might even still be is like the official way to measure pain right which is just so qualitative that it's going to produce all sorts of wacky fucked up results Mm -hmm. it's not like measuring someone's heart rate or something it's literally like which of these smiley faces this like from smiling to like angry warhead guy that's always so hard too because you don't want to like be a bitch when you're picking but you're like (laughs) i feel like somewhere between frowny and like incredible frowny. <laughs> I just feel like it was a bad idea to like assign a smiley face you could point to to have your doctor automatically give you the best drugs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which leads me uh, into another part of the story, which is the, the pill mills. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, basically the ground zero for all this pill mill stuff is Portsmouth, Ohio. Um, Portsmouth, Ohio is where a doctor named David Proctor blew into town from Nova Scotia, freshly out of med school, and started a business called Plaza Healthcare in 1979. Um, He was brought into town by this guy, Billy Riddle, who immediately died of a heart attack, and then Proctor just sort of took over, right? Um, Proctor is this doctor who... um, (laughs) Wait, wait, are you sure you know how Billy Riddle died? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm saying. It sounds like so suspect because he then starts this healthcare clinic where uh, basically so so David Proctor drove a Porsche and he wore rings and shit and was constantly fucking his nurses. Um, (laughs) And he was like married and had kids and shit. Oh, no. A nurse referred to him as looking like, quote, Little Richard or Liberace. Right? And so he started this basically clinic where he figured out legally you could hire people with a, just the bare minimum uh, like legal requirements and degrees and shit like that and then open a, you know, a, 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 a healthcare clinic in like a fucking, I don't know, it used to be a Taco Bell or something, like one of those buildings, you know, some weird strip mall and shit. Would and, you like uh, to live, Moss? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, he would sort of uh, sell pills for cash. So he created, like, one of the first, like, extremely, you know, quote-unquote, like, legit businesses. You know, it was the rub and tug of buying um, pills, right? Um, at one point, like, he had to resign, but he just hired a bunch of people and propped them up. And, you know, he was very shady about it. Um, 
And these sorts of things like created this situation where there were just like a line down the street of, you know, basically junkies. And the reason, you know, all these junkies were lining up um, is because this shit's like really easy to get. Um, heroin sometimes wasn't. Uh, and they're just sort of like, um, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's like very obvious. Like it's a wink, wink situation. Everyone knows what the fuck's going on. Right. So I'll get back to this. His. doesn't sound like anything Liberace would do <laughs> at all. I'll get back to his pill mills in a minute, but a really funny story about the end of his, uh, the pill mill thing is that like the DEA eventually busted the, the whole concept of pill mills. Like they just like, I can't remember the, the, it's uh, the fucking operation. It's called like pillitude or something like that it's something <laughs> really dumb um but he runs this shit forever it perpetuates a lot of this addiction and at the end um he tried to escape right uh proctor pled guilty to conspiracy to distribute prescription medications then he fled to canada with a bail bonds woman who was neither his wife nor his mistress the third woman. Um, Some real last days of Pablo Escobar shit. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. They were caught at the Canadian border with $40,000 and two tickets to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> he ended up a federal prisoner in the prison that was once the narcotics farm oh. from the earlier part of this episode. That's poetic. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? Mm. Um, <clears throat> but the thing about the pill mills is that... Um, so this coincides with the Jalisco boys, right? So all this is happening, and a lot of these companies, like the pill mills, don't understand why they're making so much money. A lot of the drug dealers don't understand why they're making so much money. It's because, <laughs> like, two things are going on at the same time, and they don't really understand that they're symbiotic. So there's this, uh, this drug cartel called the Jalisco boys that's starting up um, in this town called Jalisco in the state of Nayarit in Mexico. Uh, Mexico has states, by the way. Um, Jalisco, spelled with an X, is a town not to be confused with the state of Jalisco, which is a, a state in Mexico. With a J. Mm-hmm. Um, they have a sauce. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's this group of drug dealers that sort of um, slowly start to figure out that um, there's a way to sell heroin, like retail style in the states, that won't get you into trouble with the law and won't get you into like big shootouts and stuff at this point like this you is you got to do some narcos season four spoiler warnings here <laughs> <laughs> oh is that for real no, i don't oh, know <laughs> they're not up to season be a, four yet they're it's gonna be in mexico though so they might oh. talk about this stuff oh badass uh shout out to narcos for sponsoring the show <laughs> uh if you are on netflix check out narcos the accent work is great and no one who speaks Spanish has ever complained about it. <laughs> it's a great show. Oh, dude, I fucking hate it when they do that in, like, Breaking Bad. And, like, the Dexter was really bad. When, like, the detectives that were, like, <laughs> supposed to be Cuban would flirt with each other. They'd they have the like, Castellan F? Yeah. <laughs> they'd be like, let's go home and get caliente with each other. <laughs> it was fucking terrible. But, um, basically, the, the Jalisco boys, and I'll get through this, and then we'll sort of get into a more general discussion or whatever. But um, the Jalisco boys are basically this cartel that, um, you know, they... They're these guys who are sort of tired of living a straight life in a very, like, down-and-out economically part of Mexico where you can sort of become a farmer or fuck off, right? And farming is, like, you know, very brutal work. It doesn't pay very well. It, this it is after NAFTA's passed. Yeah, um, which I would argue is why this happened and something to keep in mind in, in, when we think about, you know, oh, these Mexicans are coming over here and stealing our jobs. And like, well, why did this shit happen to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... What they figured out was that you could go to, like, Denver. Like, a lot of them started in Denver. And you could deal drugs, but you would get in trouble if you were busted with a whole bunch of drugs, right? And you also didn't want to get in trouble with, like, the Bloods and the Crips because there's all this gang warfare happening. So what they would do is they would get in these car, They would hire, like, drivers. There'd be, like, one guy who just lives in, like, a hollowed-out apartment who would, like, package all the drugs. And you would give your drivers a fuck ton of, like, small balloons of heroin and they would drive around with like a you know a burner phone and a whole like weird beeper system where they would send like two numbers and the numbers were like the coordinates on a map and shit and that's how you knew where to go sell the stuff but they weren't paid like normal dealers where they get paid like per sale they were paid salary right <laughs> so they were like young teenagers from uh Jalisco who knew that they would go up there and get paid a certain rate so they wouldn't step on their own drugs right they would just sell them and also 
they couldn't get busted. If one of them got busted, it was inconsequential because they carried such a small amount of drugs on them. And the way they did that is they would have these heroin balloons in their mouths. They would just, like, drive around with a like, big fucking mouthful of balloons. <laughs> and if a cop pulled them over, they would just swallow all of them. They'd be like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm on my way to a children's birthday party. <laughs> Why is my mouth full of balloons? What if I told you it was a snake? <laughs> <laughs> um, but because uh, they... You know, they wouldn't get busted with a, a large amount of drugs. The DEA never caught on. It took them a really long time to catch on that this was even a cartel. They couldn't figure out why heroin use was going up. And they were specifically selling black tar heroin also, which is, like, part of why this gets, like, you know, way more addictive or whatever. So now it's racial. <laughs> it is racial. They wouldn't sell to black people mm -hmm. uh, because they were, like, afraid of uh, the bloods and crips and violence and all this shit. They were super racist. They were, like, horrible. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, I'm starting to think this isn't cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they would, but they would work, like, really diligently, and they none of their drivers, like, use the drugs. Like, they would, like, send you back to Mexico. If they they would just you, keep them in balloons in their <laughs> mouth. <laughs> yeah. And they would do hey like kids, drug dealing may be cool, but do you know what's not cool? <laughs> Racism. <laughs> <laughs> so they would do this shit, like they would do it like, you know, the way you'd come up here and like work a dishwashing job and make like, you know, not great money, but when you take it back, the exchange rate is so high that you're like a king for a day, right? right. But these were young kids, right? So the real tragic story for them and the really weird part of the story is that they didn't really, a lot of them come home and like set up a new business of their own or any sort of life, they would come, they would work for like a year straight doing this weird pizza delivery heroin thing, living in like a hovel, you know, like a, like a McNulty apartment with like a cot in it or whatever. And they would go back and they would just blow all the money all at once on hiring bando music, which is like, you know, the crazy fucking Mexican shit. Dome. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, they would buy like fucking racing horses and uh, buy shit tons of cheap beer. And in particular, the one like, for some fucking reason, the one big um, uh, status item that they all believed in and all like would used to one up each other was Levi's 501 jeans. Hell yes. They were so fucking hooked on Levi's 501 jeans <laughs> that they would sometimes sell heroin just directly for the jeans if they could get <laughs> their customers to just shoplift 501 specifically fucking jeans, right? It's the real drug. It's it, comfortable, it, Dan. Buying the jeans from a guy who takes it like pocket by pocket out of his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so I support this behavior. I feel like uh, it is okay to be racist if you later buy a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually this all culminates in um, this, this DEA... Um, agent um sort of uh you know there's like a like a crazy cowboy cop guy that eventually like figures it out it would honestly make kind of a cool movie i think um <laughs> narco he, season four <laughs> yeah, yeah um he figures it out and right as he's figuring out it out i mean he did this thing called operation tar pit where they bust a bunch of the jalisco boys but really it doesn't work because there's such a fucking uh like a perfect system that even when they busted all of them like 30 more cells just opened back up the next day like the next day it was like crazy right i'm just imagining like the fbi has like a room full of 16 year olds in the ground just calling it in like call it in i got a room full of well-dressed jeans <laughs> <laughs> so, eventually the jalisco boys sort of go under anyway because uh, apropos of all of this shit the drug wars in Mexico just start to blow into um, Nayarit. And so at one point, there's this, I just remember this because the name is really funny, but there's like one big shootout that kills a bunch of these people and ends a lot of these like drug cells in which a local drug lord named El Papino is killed. No. El, El Papino means the cucumber. <laughs> 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 it's fucking badass. Um, Delicious. So, His so, arch enemy ranch dressing. <laughs> <laughs> He's a, a Yo soy el pickle Rick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> His final words. <laughs> yeah. um, so, as all this shit is sort of happening, the sales of heroin are causing people who can't find heroin to go to the pill mills. People who can't get the pill mills are giving heroin. They're symbiotic, right? Um, but also, at the same time, OxyContin is pulling that shit, or uh, Purdue is pulling this shit where they're like re 
like sell, they're like reselling oxycontin and introducing it in uh you know new ways that are supposed to be not addictive right, right. the whole thing to begin with oh is it's not addictive because it's time release but it, obviously it's addictive right so the second thing they did was they released it in a like an uncrushable pill form supposedly nice you, right you could crush it i think if you just licked the candy coating off of it well yeah like a couple things on that like the stat i always remember is i believe from 95 when oxycontin was introduced to 99 uh, uh prescription opiate use quadrupled in the united states and then what happened was they had this like guideline with oxycontin which was like do not uh, crush it and snort it, which, of course, for any drug user was like, oh, this is the way to get high immediately, <laughs> you know, yeah. and which, of course, they knew. They knew people were doing that. Do not you know? boof this drug. Right. Um, and I think it's 2010 or something they released the uncrushable one, which kicks off the heroin epidemic. It's uh, I forget the exact year, but that's like what people say is that people go over to heroin around this time. When they released the uncrushable form of OxyContin, um, Oxy abuse dropped by 36%, and in the same year, heroin went up yeah. by 46 or 42%. Is yeah. it that much worse if you just take it as a pill? Um, it doesn't get you high immediately. Is yeah. why snorting it is, is good, I guess. I don't know. I've uh, My only connection to really heroin ever is I've snorted heroin one time. Well, let's find out live on the podcast. <laughs> from, from your one time, you don't feel like you need like a trial first? <laughs> I mean, I did, I, but the thing is, I didn't. I never done like oxycodone or anything. Oh, but yeah. That, i got to be honest with you. Well, maybe I shouldn't record myself saying this, but heroin, I mean, I get why it's addictive. Oh, yeah. sure. That was a fun day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> we all bought <laughs> horses. <laughs> I was just laid out in my 501 jeans. <laughs> I shit like, them. Laying down, looking good. Yeah. I could see giving up my friends and family for this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, in 2007, um, drug overdose deaths at more than 50,000 overcame car crash deaths as the leading cause of death in Ohio. By 2018, they've hit 72,000. Um What's going on with Purdue now is that Purdue now is sort of trying to to like get in front of the scandal on both ends, sort of. Um, Purdue patented a drug called Buprenof phone. I think I got that wrong, but um, anyway, banana phone. Banana phone. Yeah. <laughs> um, Purdue uh, has basically patented a drug that's sort of designed to wean people off OxyContin. So that's Fucking super evil. Like <laughs> Henry Ford, you know, consolidation <laughs> shit. Um, well, it's also like if you go to Purdue's official website, because they've gotten so much shit for the heroin epidemic, like the first thing you'll see is a giant pop-up being like, this is how we're fighting the heroin epidemic. Right. <laughs> this is how we feel on the pain this scale. Is, <laughs> Frowny <laughs> face. Yeah. This is how we're making money on both ends. Of yeah. the fucking suffering we have created. Yeah, and so like they, you know, also claim to be philanthropically just like throwing all this money at um, Nac Noxolone, the like the drug that used to make Narcan. Narcan's like the yeah, name, the, the brand of uh, Noxolone, which is like an inhalant that can be used to like st stop someone from overdosing. Basically, mm. you have to um, jam that into their heart, right? Pulp <laughs> <laughs> fiction. Yeah, and you have to say yes. I hope they die, and I hope they burn in hell. <laughs> Um, no, it's like a inhalant thing. Um, but, uh, I mean, I don't John really... John Travolta, official spokesperson for Narcan. <laughs> yeah. Um, Narcan was given to us by Xenu. <laughs> <laughs> um, what the fuck happened with Narcan recently? They're trying to, like, outlaw it or something. Or it's, uh, you can be, like, um, arrested for possessing it or what something. What the fuck? Yeah, this happened recently, I think. Um, Sounds like what a good the idea. Fuck? Yeah, it's fucking really bad. You can be arrested for possessing something that's attempting to save someone's life. Um, it's really fucked up. But anyway, um, that's about it from what I got from uh, Dreamland. Um, basically, Purdue's pretty fucked up, yo. Damn. Well, yeah, I mean, and so, like, two things, and, and I'll talk about this because I think it is important because... Essentially, like, the the stats, I believe, are 200,000 Americans or so plus have died since 2000 from opiate prescription overdoses. So that's not even including the added heroin overdoses right. and these kinds of stuff. And uh, I learned about this stuff essentially because my younger brother is a recovering heroin addict. Right. So he started out, you know, abusing Oxy, and then he was uh, uh, very scary for a time, you know, stealing from my parents. They had to kick him out. He was homeless, living on the streets. Uh, he's in recovery now, and, and I'm very lucky, and I, I think he's doing better, you 
you know. But it's just like you watch somebody you love like go through that and become, you know, like such a, a different person where all they can think about is just getting money to get high. And, you know, you realize once you do a little bit of reading that this was essentially intentionally created. So it's just something where it's like uh, people talk about sometimes the so-called failings of socialized medicine. Well, this is entirely the failing of capitalist medicine where the entire business incentive for Purdue and these other uh, distributors and producers was to get people addicted, which is why they had the fucking free coupons and the all expenses paid trip because they created a class of addicted people and they made something like I think Purdue made $35 billion uh, just off Oxycontin. So, you know, it's... There's that, and then there's also, like, um, there's a great Washington Post 60 Minutes investigation into what the DEA did about the uh, the pill mills and the distributors and just how that all got corrupted that I can talk about. Oh, yeah, uh, please do. I guess, like, the, the thing that's so frustrating about it is you know these people knew exactly what they were doing because opiate marketing has been going on for centuries. Oh, like, yeah. the English got the uh, Chinese hooked on opiates <laughs> hundreds of years ago. It's not like we didn't know what would happen. Yeah. Like handing him the, the pipe and there's like, no, there's a time release on this. <laughs> you can't so. crush this pipe. <laughs> yeah. a special Warning, program. do not smoke out of pipe. <laughs> I'll sell you a different pipe that gets you off the first pipe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. So I guess the reason, you know, I've like outlined and told this whole story without beating it over the head is that I think the thing to be gleaned from this is like how does capitalism play into what happened with yeah. this whole opium crisis well essentially like the the Washington Post article I'd really recommend people uh, read but uh, essentially um, the story is that uh, the DEA uh, again whatever you think about them they did have an, uh, an uh, a division that was devoted towards uh, the pharmaceutical industry so sure. they had the power up until 2016 to essentially if they saw a suspicious shipment which you saw all throughout the heroin epidemic you saw like uh these distributors like mckesson and cardinal health they get their pills from purdue and johnson and johnson and all the other people and then they're responsible for distributing to all the different um cvs's and pill mills and pain clinics and these kinds of things so mckesson and and these kinds of places would send you know like a town in west virginia with 400 total people would send them four million opiate pain pills in one year and then that like didn't raise any flags for them they were like oh yeah no that's let's totally process this order so essentially the DEA had the power up until 2016 to freeze these suspicious orders but what happens is the top lawyer at the DEA I believe is the top lawyer was a guy named Lyndon Barber uh, up until 2011 then he leaves the DEA goes to a private law firm where he starts working with these pharmaceutical companies to be like hey I can get you out of your DEA problems and then he literally writes the law in 2016 that essentially takes away the DEA's power to do this to freeze these suspicious mm. shipments and also like uh, you know 60 minutes uh, and the Washington Post they talked to all these DEA whistleblowers who are like, yeah, as of like 2013, all of our bosses would just suddenly be like, no, no more investigation into this or that pharmaceutical company. They'd be like, oh, you need more evidence. You need a wiretap. You need more expert witnesses, et cetera, et cetera. Just slow walking all the investigations. And then you have, I think, like 56 uh, people from both Department of Justice and DEA uh, going over to opiate pharmaceutical companies as soon as they leave government from like 2000 onwards. I got kicked off of Facebook for making a joke about how Mark Marin would stop in the middle of fucking you to do an ad for stamps.com <laughs> <laughs> and they can't do a fucking freeze on a, a obvious like <laughs> drug deal. Right. Oh, and the whole thing's so fucked up because it's like uh, Tom Marino was a congressman who like he introduced the bill, but of course it was this uh, guy, Lyndon Barber, who actually wrote the language. And then Marsha Blackburn, who's running for Senate in Tennessee right now, she co-sponsored it. Um, and so, but it's also, you know, Obama signed the fucking thing. Mitch McConnell introduced it as like uh, unanimous consent and nobody objected. And Obama says like, or his people say that they just didn't know what they were signing, which it's like, I mean, that's just as bad. Right. The whole thing is, is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. I don't but, know if this is in your uh, uh, your wheelhouse, so mm-hmm. maybe we'd have to do like, a different episode on it, but there are, there are you know, very rare states like uh, Portugal have legalized all of their drugs all at once, uh-huh. uh, claiming to just like offer like state treatment instead, and they claim that addiction rates across the board for everything have kind of fallen down? Do you think something like that would work? 
Yeah, I mean, like, uh, essentially in Seattle, where I'm from, the heroin epidemic got so bad that police and uh, communities have kind of come together to essentially do a decriminal. There's a great frontline documentary, Chasing Heroin, which kind of goes through both Purdue Pharma and the Seattle response. But essentially, like, what the cops there are doing now is, like, if you're a heroin addict, like, they will essentially give you a card that says, if you need treatment, call this number. And uh, as long as you're not breaking into houses, we're not going to arrest you. You know, like, and so the Frontline documentary kind of explores the early stages of that. But I think it is essentially a public health crisis where sure. that's what you have to do is you just have to kind of like wait for people to hit bottom and take treatment. And then as long as they're like not being dangerous to other people, throwing them in a cage doesn't really help. Yeah. Well, in order to do that, you would have to think of, uh, you know, drugs and medicine, all this as like a health crisis and health as a right, et cetera, <laughs> and all these things not as... It's very un-American. Right. Yeah. You know, the most American thing you can do is uh, you see drugs and uh, health issues as uh, uh, violations committed by perps. Yeah, you got to yeah. stop those perps because they're, they're out there and they're committing crimes. Yeah. That's why a lot of these stories about the DEA are like hard to even... I don't want to promote anything good they ever did because that also is that right, dude. the fucking problem here. Fuck Walter White's brother-in-law. Yeah, that guy I sucked. hope he gets shot again. He looks like a little hedgehog. I'll he looks like a hedgehog. The, the outline of the bit I'm trying to do, and I don't know if this is funny. I never tried it, <laughs> but the outline is essentially like you watch these shows about uh, you know drug cartels and the DEA, DEA agents are always these like professional badass, you know, cold-blooded, like by the book people, like getting the job done. Everybody's afraid of and i was like they should just do like one of these shows about how the dea deals with the pharmaceutical industry and it'd be like a bunch of people in a boardroom being like oh fuck the dea's here <laughs> they're trying to drop off their resumes <laughs> yeah. I, I mean that's the bit yeah, but yeah. it's just something that's very frustrating because you know like just watching my brother and my parents go through that like the amount of stress as a parent like seeing your child like steal from you and not being able to trust what they say right and you know like and we're essentially lucky in that my brother's still alive and he's in recovery and he's trying so you just imagine like all of the people who lost loved ones to this intentionally created epidemic and you get so fucking angry with the system that you know nobody's been held criminally responsible so that's like of all the great reasons to support Medicare for all, I've kind of come to the place in my head where I'm like, I don't think these people will ever see the inside of a prison cell, but maybe we can destroy their business model. Right. You know, put yeah. them out of business. That's a really interesting thing about uh, the opioid crisis in terms of like, you're talking about like, you know, parents watching this stuff happen to their kids as fucked up as that is something that's interesting about it is the the Jalisco boys and this and this whole you know three-pronged thing that happened um specifically targeted like affluent like middle class kids right um it's not like you know heroin in the 70s where it was like you know fucking Lou Reed and crazy people in you know seventies spooky Manhattan right. or whatever. Everyone has nunchucks. <laughs> yeah, um, it uh, th it sort of like got into the the upper class because because of the way the Jalisco boys were like selling is they would a you know they were racist and they would not target people of color, mm -hmm. um, but they would also try to de to develop these customers who they knew would come to them because they were afraid to go to the fucking hood yeah. and they would also have lots of disposable income and also a lot of these kids were like athletes who would get hooked or get prescribed painkillers and then be addicted to them and then not be able to get you know their prescriptions refilled and shit and so what that ha caused was um a sort of like twin peaksy sort of like don't talk about it thing among a lot of like a lot of upper class uh, bougie people like a lot of people would you know not talk openly about the fact that they have a kid who's addicted to right. heroin or died or whatever and it took a long time for people to start coming out about that because it was such a social taboo yeah um you know what's so funny about this is i could see like fox news covering the heroin epidemic and then just being like see they're targeting our kids because it's white genocide yeah well, <laughs> they're trying to take our best athletes i mean from state i think that's kind of like where they got all the way around to though because what eventually when they sort of got over that taboo it seems like a lot of um even like republican politicians got 
got on board with somehow reforming against this shit because so many of their fucking people were starting to be the victims of it. That's why I think like there's maybe like a, a crack in the armor there in terms of trying to get Medicare for all through or maybe in some parts of the country. I don't know. My son Quentin was the most promising polo player this side <laughs> of the river. Yeah. Until he started taking naps all day. Now he won't stop playing that harmonica music. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, and I, I think that's why it's so important for, like, people who, like, you know, were either addicted themselves or, or knew, you know, loved ones who were addicted to kind of, like, speak about this and to, like, learn that there are actual people who profited off what they did to you or your loved one. So that's you know? what I'm saying. If we can get them all the way around to that, I yeah. think we got something. Because you want a lot of, like, Republicans and fucking shitty whatever people that are newly affected by a drug crisis because of this are now starting to do is they're starting to go like oh now i understand this as a health crisis there are all these republican politicians that for the first time in their entire career are not like it's a fucking drug you know used by all these super predators and shit it's it's more like wait now this is a health crisis now this is like and now i understand it and it's about you know it could happen to you too or whatever the cross team is devastated (laughs) yeah our our rapists are not they're just asleep at home you know what's so fucked about that too is the communities getting concerned are the ones with Purdue executives in them. Yeah. We're right. just like, I wonder who we could blame for this <laughs> terrible happenstance. Yeah, but I think that might maybe in a way that's like the that could be an end to this. That the thing could eat itself or something. But I don't know. Maybe uh, well, it's, like, it's it's one of those interesting things where like I've watched a lot of like documentaries on this and some of them like are more I guess both sidesy about this where they'll be like oh the doctors are also to blame and it's like yeah a little bit but you have to kind of start with like the pharmaceutical industry had an incentive to both lie to the doctors lie to the public and just ship a million pills to to pain clinics that were essentially just fucking you know people would come down from West Virginia and buy several thousand and then go back and be pushers themselves you know so it's like you have to kind of start with that and you also have to like look at essentially the money where it's like there are people who are like corrupted by this like i mentioned marcia blackburn and tom marino were the the two congress two of the congress people who co-sponsored this thing that stripped the dea of all their power and they had like hundreds of you know opiate overdose deaths in their district but of course you know it's like they just thought that because they were getting all this money from the pharmaceutical industry they could like do this in the shadows and nobody would pay attention and then Again, you have, like, Trump even talked about the fucking uh, opiate epidemic on the campaign trail, and then his only response is to, like, get Chris Christie to put out this document that just doesn't mention the pharmaceutical industry did anything wrong, you know? Right. Well, yeah, and it's specifically with, like, Trump-style bullshit, yeah. uh, his, his attack, his solution to it is just, like... Duterte style like you know <laughs> punishment for possession of drugs right and both that and blaming the doctors are both sort of like not understanding the root of the problem it's attacking the symptom and not the, the disease you know the big underlying systematic thing that right. caused the whole fucking and problem yeah, like I don't think like fucking Saudi Arabia punishment is going to solve the problem but like if you're going to do that like at least do it consistently but that's not what happens yeah. it's entirely like you know, like the fucking low-level pushers at my high school who, like, sold my brother Oxy, they end up in jail. But it's like the higher and higher up you go the food chain to McKesson, nobody responsible, you know? If it was a Saudi Arabian-style punishment, they would be missing just one hand. <laughs> <laughs> the hand that they would use to give the drugs out. <laughs> and then yeah. you could spot them on the street and you'd know that they had not been a, a, a halal. They mm-hmm. cut their mouth out because that's where they were keeping the heroin. <laughs> <laughs> what would you even fucking look like? Uh, they cut your butt gross. off if you were boofing? Yes, they would cut your butt off. <laughs> Just a man with no ass. <laughs> <laughs> Saudi Arabia-style punishment where they kill Washington Post reporters for yeah. <laughs> looking at this. No shit. That story just sort of flew by the radar, huh? <laughs> Sometimes I have problems with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where we like want to do a Grubstakers episode about MBS in Saudi Arabia because he's a billionaire, but it's kind of like you don't want to like freeze it in time. You want to let them do more and more bad shit. You want right. to see how the story ends. It's like doing a Trump episode. You're like, when does the story end? Yeah. That's what I want to talk about. This would be an know? ongoing thing. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's uh, about an hour. I feel pretty good about it. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on? Um... 
No, not really. Uh, I hope uh, Marsha Blackburn loses in Tennessee just because, you know, I'm like, I, I haven't read anything about the Democrat running against her. I'm sure he has his problems, but it's like she's such a opiate industry stooge and these people just like, I just hope there's some measure of accountability, even the smallest amount for these people and Medicare for all, all that stuff. For uh, sure. Just going back to what Jake was saying before. The nachos at El Cortez are <laughs> phenomenal. Yeah, they're good as hell. You can order them, and they're pretty much like a whole meal by themselves. But that doesn't have to be all. You could have something else with that. You could get maybe a chimichanga with steak. You can so, get half order of nachos upstairs or go downstairs and go crazy and get the whole thing. So so when will I be receiving my free pair of Levi's jeans for this episode? <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me unfurl them from my mouth and butt <laughs> that I used to smuggle them into this country. Um, Your upside down cross has <laughs> pants on every corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hell yeah. Um, where can we follow you, Sean McCarthy? Uh, let's see. I'm on Twitter at SeanMcCarthy.com. Uh, Grubstakers podcast about billionaires. We do usually a new biography of every billionaire every week, and we kind of talk about bad stories that you don't usually read about in the business press. And I did want to mention for anyone in New York City, I will be doing a week at the Creek in the Cave, October 29 through November 2nd. Uh, 7 p.m. every night, free show. Uh, come watch me turn uh, 35 minutes of stand-up into an hour. <laughs> or <Cool>. 45 minutes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'll be doing my banks and my um, opiate jokes. So uh, if you like stand-up, uh, please come out. Cool. If you want Sean to ask where you're from, <laughs> and if you're dating your sister yeah. who's there. I'm copying Drew Michael. I'll be doing it in front of no audience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, w that work was pioneered at the Creek in the Cave. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, just follow me on Twitter at Patak Jokes, and then listen to the Ballin' Out Super podcast for uh, in-depth analysis of the show Dragon Ball Super on Adult Swim, and no heroin allowed. <laughs> Um, at Feral Jokes and everything, obviously. Um, come out to the next Yoko. I think it's. I think we're gonna be monthly um, at El Cortez if you're in Brooklyn. Um, I'm gonna work on. Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna kick the tires on it and get it like maybe you know cheaper, maybe better for the audience. I don't know. We're gonna do stuff, but uh, it was really good. So I'm looking forward to doing more Yoko with my homies. And um, also, if you are a listener and you have not subscribed to our Patreon and you would like a bunch more of this show, as in twice as much, one bonus episode a week, and access to our entire back catalog, uh, we're finally searchable on Patreon. Um, we have always been on Patreon, but previously, I think you had to like type in the address exactly to the letter you had to hack in yeah um or else you wouldn't be able to find us and i got it finally got it fixed um probably did untold damage to my finances by <laughs> it being like that for a long time <laughs> uh, i'm gonna try really hard not to think about that and um all that but um yeah uh sign up and uh listen to more of our stuff thanks for supporting us and thanks for coming out and you know, come to the shows and all that bullshit. For um, just $5 a month, you can hide balloons of our show in your mouth. Yeah, I was going to say, you do sell the podcast out of your mouth. <laughs> that way, if I'm pulled over, I can't be charged with a high-level podcast crime. <laughs> Suck it, cops. All right, that's it. Cause it makes me feel like I'm a